All right, so we're just going to read through Acts chapter 8, verse uh, 1 to 24. We're just going to read that together, and then we'll get started. This is what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. This is the execution of Stephen, if you remember from last week. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about uh, preaching the word. Philip went down in the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame or healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But, uh, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. After seeing signs, great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, whom came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, I pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So, after having kids, I realized just how messy kids are, right? We all know kids are messy, but I didn't realize it until I had one. All the food they throw all over the place and the accidents and the... Ellie just had an accident the other day in the tub. Um, a number two accident, not a number one. I know that's a great visual there. But kids are messy, right? They're nasty. They're cute, but they're nasty. Um, in the same way, ministry is messy, right? And, and people are messy, and today we're going to see that with Philip, a man who obviously believes Jesus and preaches the gospel. And he brings the gospel to these people, the Samaritans, who are a messy people who don't understand what the gospel means, the implications of the gospel. But the gospel is a gospel that cleans messes, right? And our God is a God that cleans messes. These Samaritans are messy people, and that's exactly why they need the gospel. And The same is true for us. Um, I am messy, and that's why I need the gospel. You are messy, and that's why you need the gospel. So today, we're going to see a gospel that cleans a messy people, and how preaching the gospel 
cleans messes. Um, but before we get that, we're just going to look at the context of what's going on here and just remind ourselves of the situation at hand. If we start here in, in verse 3 um, of, of chapter 8, we see that there's great persecution arising in the church. If you remember last week, we had Stephen was martyred. He was the first Christian martyr, the first guy to die for the name of Jesus. And now in verses chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, we see persecution coming, more persecution coming, and the church is starting to scatter because of that persecution. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gave a mandate. He said, you'll be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem, he said, Judea and Samaria, and he said, to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 1, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The church has been a witness in Jerusalem, and now they are entering into the second part of ministry. Now they're ministering in the region of Judea and Samaria. We are entering entering into the second leg of ministry for the church. That one verse in verse 8 of chapter 1 is a blueprint for the entire book of Acts. The first seven chapters of Acts is focused on Jerusalem. Now we're going to be in Judea and Samaria. And then after verse uh, chapter 10 and the whole rest of it's going to be to the ends of the earth. So that's what that's what's going on here. That's sort of the big picture here. Um, there are two people, two main characters we need to deal with on the front end of things. The first is this man Philip. That's what we're looking at. We saw Stephen last week and now we're looking at Philip this week and he's going to be the main character today and also the main character next week. If you remember Philip, he was one of the seven men chosen. There were all these widows, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, that were being neglected. They didn't have food, the resources they needed. And so the church chose seven men, full of the Spirit, of good repute, full of wisdom, to meet the needs of these widows. Philip is one of these guys. He is a guy that's here to wait tables. He's here to serve. He's here to provide for needs. He has chosen to serve alongside uh, Stephen here. And as you remember, Stephen was martyred last week. Now, there, there's a lot that we can learn from Philip and the rest of these guys. But I just want to look at one thing uh, about Philip and the rest of, of the, the servants here. And we see that in verse 1. Just again, we're establishing the context what's going on. It says, There arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church is scattered to continue preaching the gospel, except the apostles, the professionals, right? Peter, James, John, these are the guys that walk with Jesus. These are the guys that, that Peter preached a sermon and 5,000 people were saved. These were like the head honchos. And yet, they're not leaving Jerusalem. It's everyone else is leaving Jerusalem. There is a huge application here. The second leg of gospel ministry is going to be built on these no-names. Is going to be built on these nobodies. It says they. It doesn't even mention their name. We hear Philip here. But it says they scattered. And they were preaching the gospel. This is gospel multiplication, right? God uses no names to spread his message. 
He didn't use Peter, James, and John for this second leg of ministry. He used a guy named Philip. He used a guy named Stephen. We don't see Philip anymore after this, after chapter 8. He disappears off the face of the map. Stephen had 15 minutes of fame, you know, and, he, and he's gone now. God has chosen to use this second generation of Christ followers to share and to spread the gospel. What's amazing to me is these people, months before, didn't even know who Jesus was. And now not only are they being persecuted for their faith, but they're leaving house and home to preach Jesus to Samaritans, to Judeans, people that they don't even like, right? If you know the history of the Samaritans, they don't even like these people. This is what I believe it looks like to be a part of a church and to be one in the church. It's an every member ministry. It's not built on the pastor. It's not built on one person or another person. Every member is called to multiply himself. We're all multiplying. We're all sort of pouring into other people so that they can know Christ. And they pour into someone else. They pour into someone else. And it goes and it goes and it goes. God multiplying Christ's followers to the witness of all of us rather than to the witness of some of us. That's what we see. It's an amazing thing. Can you think about that? That if Peter and John were like, all right, guys, you do it. We're going to stay here. That's one thing we see through the ministry of Philip here, just to establish a context. The second thing we see is this guy named Saul. So most of you know who this guy named Saul is. Right here we see Saul ravaging the church. Verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Thank God for his grace, right? Because this is not Saul's life for the rest of his life. Saul meets Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus and turns into the apostle Paul that we know very well. But at this point, he is trying to kill Christians and not make Christians. He is trying to destroy Christians. But the, the interesting thing I learned about Saul here is that even while he is persecuting the church, indirectly he, was, he is still fulfilling the mission of God. Look at verse 4. It says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Because of Saul's persecution, he didn't stomp out Christianity, he spread Christianity. Everyone was sort of gathered in Jerusalem and they weren't moving like Jesus told him to, God used the sin of Saul to spread the gospel that he was trying to destroy. That's an amazing thing. In Paul's preaching and Saul's persecution, he spreads the gospel. We all know that famous quote, Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? We know that quote. That's what Joseph said to his brothers that sold him into slavery. That's exactly what we see here. What Saul meant for evil to kill and to destroy the church, God meant for good to continue the expansion of the gospel. What it tells us is that nothing happens apart from the sovereign control of God. He's got it all figured out. Even Saul, who was trying to destroy Christians, is really just making Christians, right? God, um, if, if you remember, I'm just going to read this real quick. Acts chapter 2, verses 38. Uh, Where is it? No, it's verse 23. It says, this is Peter speaking. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God accomplished the salvation of the world through the evil desires and actions of sinful men. God is sovereign over everything. And so as we just sort of look at the context here, uh, verses one to three, we see these two men, Paul and Saul, accomplishing the mission of God in ways that they would have never even realized, okay? Chris, could you turn down the heat? It's kind of hot in here. Right over there, thanks. So that's the context here. So Saul's persecution has become the push that Philip needed to bear witness to Jesus among the Samaritans. And it's now to the Samaritans that we turn. So the church is getting beat up. They're moving out to Judea and Samaria. And then let's see how it works out for Saul. Uh, sorry, for Philip. And we're going to be in verse 4 and just read quickly through to verse 8. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So Philip is scattered. He's going to Samaria. It says the crowds have come. They're listening to him. They paid attention to what was being said by Philip. They saw the signs and the wonders that he did, casting out demons, crying out with a loud voice. Many people were healed. Many of the paralyzed became well, and the lame were healed. And there was much joy in the city. So Philip is having a lot of success here. Right? He's going and he's really continuing what we've already seen from the church. Jesus did this, right? Whenever Jesus' ministry started, he was healing folks, he was casting out demons. We've seen this from the other apostles, Peter, um, healing folks, casting out demons. So Philip is just doing the same thing that everyone else did, and it's really working out. Verse 6 says that they paid attention to him. Verse 8 says that there was much joy in the city. Philip was having a lot of success. Um, but as we're going to see as we continue, he's going to run into some obstacles here. And this is where it gets messy because people are messy. Just like my little girl is messy, she's going to be messy in other areas as she grows up, right? Just being a a human being, whenever we share the gospel, we're dealing with messy people. And so the first thing that we're going to see about the gospel is that preaching the gospel gets messy because it breaks down boundaries, Preaching the gospel gets messy because it breaks down boundaries. Um, There's no greater picture than this than the fact that the gospel is coming to the Samaritans. Does anyone know the history of the Samaritans? Does anyone know sort of where they come from and, and, you know, how they're received amongst the Jews? The Samaritans are a half-breed, to put it lightly, okay? Uh, That's sort of a pejorative way to put it. But... The history of the Samaritans comes from 2 Kings 17 to 24, and I'll just read it for you. I got it right here. This is what it says. This is way back in the history of Israel. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, I guess, Ava, Hamath, and Sepha, something, something, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So, so let me just explain, and you can leave that up there, Sonny. So way back in the day, Israel lived in the promised land, okay? You got these people in the promised land, and that's where they live. The king from Assyria comes and takes over Israel. And he takes the Israelites out of their land, and he brings in foreigners from all across the world into the land of the Israelites. So now you have these two different people living together, Israelites and Samaritans living side by side in this town of Samaria, in this region of Samaria. Throughout the years, 
this, these foreign people intermarry with these Jewish people, right? And that's a big no-no. You're not supposed to do that. In the, in the law, it says you shall not intermarry. Only Jews marry, only Israelites marry together. But throughout the years, obviously, the Israelites didn't follow that. And so as the Israelites and these pagan people married each other, had kids through the years, now you have this distinct group called the Samaritans that weren't fully Jewish because they had compromised their faith. They weren't supposed to intermarry, but they weren't like the pagan nations either because they had this religious background. So they are kind of caught between. The Gentiles didn't like them and the Jews didn't like them. Because to the Jews, they represented religious compromise. So much so that if you remember John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling. He goes through Samaria. He meets the woman at the well. Many pious Jews would not even go through Samaria. They would actually go around and cross the river Jordan and come back around. So they wouldn't have to even go through this place. That's how sort of cast... That's how sort of on the outskirts of society these Samaritans are. People did not like the Samaritans. That's why it's scandalous whenever Jesus talks about a good Samaritan in his stories. There's, it's, uh, it has a greater meaning there, and, and I won't get into that. So, so that's what's going on here. But now the gospel is coming to the Samaritans. If you were a devout Jew, you would say, why are we preaching to the Samaritans? These guys are jacked up, right? These guys... I would never hang out with a Samaritan, right? Like, no way. I would never hang out with a Samaritan. But now, the gospel is coming to the Samaritans. Preaching the gospel gets messy because it breaks down boundaries that other people want to keep up. Jesus is breaking down boundaries between the Jews and the Samaritans. Philip is a Jew. Stephen is a Jew. The entire church at this point is mainly made up of Jews. And now they're going to their arch nemesis, their arch rival, the Samaritans, to preach the gospel. He sing, sing, Jesus singles out these people as people that need to hear the gospel, breaking down boundaries. John 4, 39 says this. This is Jesus speaking with um, the woman at the well. Jesus has already shown that he has a heart for the Samaritans. Jesus has spoken to the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. She is saved. And then it says this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So now whenever Philip is coming on the scene to preach the gospel to these people, he's building on the ministry that Jesus had already started. Jesus has already witnessed to these people. Philip is, is coming up and preaching the gospel uh, to them, building on the ministry of Christ. Um, to me, the picture here that we get of breaking down boundaries speaks so much because I can't think of a, I mean, I, I know I'm not old, but I feel like our, our country is very divided, maybe more than it's ever been before. I mean, you guys are older than I am, and maybe you could speak better. Maybe Vietnam was more division. I don't know. But our nation is so divided today, and people are so divided today, right? Democrat, Republican, you know, white, black, you know, all of these divisions that sort of come with being an American, the gospel breaks those things down. And that's the picture we get with the Jews and the Samaritans. If people were cats and dogs, that's the Jew and the Samaritans, and yet they are given the gospel. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? If we believe in Jesus, do we build up boundaries? Do we break down boundaries? Talk about messy ministry. Ephesians 2, 13 to 15 says this. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in his ordinances that he might create in himself one man in the place of two, so making peace. We have such an idea in our minds that we are separated. But in Jesus, there is no separation. In Jesus, there is no Jew. There is no Samaritan. There is no Gentile. In Jesus, there's only sinner in need of a Savior. That is where we find our unity. First, in that we are fallen. Second, that we need a Savior to save us. The Jews needed Jesus just as much as the Samaritans needed Jesus. And if that's true, then there could be no division between them. They're all on the same level here. The dividing wall of hostility is gone. Whenever we realize that our differences matter very little compared to the one thing we have in common, our sin, then those differences disappear. And whenever we understand that the gospel is offered to all people, right, those differences disappear. In Jesus, the Jews and Samaritans are reconciled because they are both just as needy. And it's the same for us today. We're, we're, we're all just so needy people. And that's why the gospel, preaching the gospel gets messy because it speaks to those boundaries. Um, I'm sure there's people in your life that you just don't like, maybe for all sorts of reasons, right? Maybe it's political reasons. Maybe it's, who knows, just personal reasons, right? If you believe in Jesus... You have to break down the walls that are dividing you from people. You have to. You really have no choice in the matter. You can't build walls because that's not the God that you serve. Jesus broke down walls. The gospel spreading to the Samaritans is a picture of that. God breaking down walls. Where there were two men, now there's one. It's a beautiful picture. That's the God that we serve. It's messy it's beautiful and it's good. Preaching the gospel is messy because it breaks down boundaries. That's what we see just by virtue of the Jews going to the Samaritans. That's what we need to apply to our lives today. The second thing we see, preaching the gospel gets messy because it speaks truth to what is false. Now we're actually getting to the scripture here. Verses 9 to 11 says this. Whenever Philip comes to the Samaritans, this is what he finds in verse 9 says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So he comes to Samaria, and there's this Simon the magician kind of running around doing spells. And we understand this is not just, you know, um, card tricks, right? This is a spiritual type of magic going on, something sort of more demonic than just sleight of hand. And he's running around, and he has quite a following. Verse 10, it says, They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. These people believed that this man Simon was doing this magic from the power of God. Um, 
Now, magic in this day wasn't that uncommon. In fact, we're going to see another magician in a few more chapters here. But it, it's, again, it's not just like sleight of hand stuff. It's like incantations and potions and sort of demonic type deal. It's something, you know, it's something you don't really want to, like kind of like black magic. And so the fact that Simon was not only tolerated amongst the Samaritans, but actually celebrated tells us a lot about these people. It tells us they probably didn't really read their Bible a whole lot. Deuteronomy 18.10 says this. It says, there shall, be not, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets opens or a sorcerer. So God was very clear on this whole magic thing. It's a no-go. We don't really go that direction. But he finds the Samaritans celebrating this guy, amazed by this guy, like, hey, look at this Simon dude. He's amazing. The fact that Simon was tolerated amongst the Samaritans shows us the spiritual condition of the people, okay? And that's true for us today. The things that we tolerate in our lives, the things that God has directly spoken against, but that we choose maybe not only to embrace, but also celebrate, kind of shows us where we're at. I mean, if God... If God said, okay, you, you know, you shouldn't have sex before you're married and then you just do it and you don't care. I mean, wh- what does that mean, right? What does that mean about your belief in God, in God for one, and, and how much you care about his word? So that, that's sort of what's going on here. God is very clear in Deuter- Deuteronomy 18.10 that this is a no-go, except these people, they embrace this guy. It shows us the condition of their hearts. It tells us that they didn't know his word, they're spiritually illiterate, or they just didn't care. That there's something going on here, there's something amiss here, that they have embraced falsehood. These people have embraced falsehood, and now Stephen comes preaching the gospel, speaking truth to falsehood. And consider how messy it can get to call people from what is false to what is true. As I've studied the Samaritans, I see a people very much like us. I, I see a, a people in the Samaritans that we have a lot in common with. These Samaritans, they have a religious background in the, you know, their Jewish heritage, but they embrace things and ideas that are contrary to what God said. Just like we, I mean, as Americans, we have this religious background but we celebrate and enjoy things most of the time that are directly contradicting to God's word, right? For one, one example, um, I, I believe the prevailing thought in our world today is that there is no such thing as absolute truth. That truth is relative. That if, you know, if it's true for you, it's true for you. If it's true for me, it's true for me. Let's just all hug and get along, Right? Who am I to judge, right? If that's good for you, then go for it. I'm not down with that, but, you know, whatever. Who am I to judge? In fact, the only wrong thing to do is to tell someone that they're doing something wrong, right? That's what's wrong, right? Don't do that. We live in a relativistic age. That's just, that's just the truth, which is, it doesn't logically make sense there. There's no objective moral standard. Everyone's free to do whatever they want to do. The Bible says the exact opposite, right? But that's sort of how people think, because it's easy. Another thing that we tend to believe is that if we're good people, we're going to get into heaven, a works-based salvation. I've 
Any person I talk to, I ask, how are you going to get into heaven? If you, if you come before God at the end of the day and God says, why should I let you in? What would you say? Most people say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. He's let me in, right? That's how most people think. The Bible doesn't say that. The third thing, many people would probably say that there are many paths to heaven. As long as you are sincere and genuine in your beliefs, you know, you can believe whatever you want, but we're probably all getting there. And then the fourth thing, we live in an age um, where most people think that they are basically good, that men and women are basically, by nature, inherently good. The Bible says no to all of that. The Bible says that there is an absolute truth. It's an objective moral standard, and it's based on the character of God. That we know, it's not only that God is good, but we know the definition of good because we know God, right? It's not that God has come to be good, but that we can only understand what goodness is by understanding who God is. That's a totally different thing. I'm, I might do a good thing, but I haven't decided what good is. God has decided what good is. The Bible says that there's no way we're getting into heaven by being good people because we're not good people. That, that's the fourth part there. Um, and that there's only one path to heaven, it's Jesus. If you have a conversation with these types of things with people, you, you might get into a heated argument. Because we don't think this way. That's not how we think. Our society has embraced falsehood. And preaching the gospel gets messy whenever you preach truth to falsehood. It gets really, really messy Because the gospel confronts people where they are at and calls them to let go of what they have held on to and embrace something else. And to do that is a miracle of God. It's it's not that you're a good debater. God has to change people's mind there. This is what it says in Romans 12, 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but, but, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How does transformation come? It's a change in thinking, okay? It's not a change in doing. It's a change in thinking, a renewal of the mind. We are all born bent on the confirmation of the world. That's just how we are because we're dead in our sins. It, it, we need the gospel to confront our false thinking with the word of God to renew our minds and change the way we think, change the way we see. For me, this didn't happen until college, until I really understood the Bible, until I really understood the gospel, until I really understood what it means to be a sinner separated from God and the need of a Savior. Embracing the gospel is a change of mind, a change of heart. It's not just a, a it's not just a consent, like, a, like I, it's just, you can't just say, I believe in Jesus, right? It's, it's much more than that. It's much deeper than that because our problem is much deeper than that. Romans 1, 25 says this, says that they, and I'll just say we, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than creator who's blessed forever, Amen. The Samaritans' issue with tolerating this man, Simon, is that they they don't understand the truth of God's word and what it means to actually follow God and have, instead of that, exchange the truth of God for a lie, embracing the falsehood that Simon represents 
and rejecting the, what is clear in God's word. Many people embrace things that are wrong, that they think are right. Many people believe things that are wrong, that they think is right. Their minds have not been renewed. Their minds have not been changed. But the gospel shows us the truth and calls us to respond. It's, it's, it's a miracle that anyone gets saved. And I'm just amazed that anyone ever gets saved because of what it means to change your mind. I had a guy that um, I was um, sort of witnessing to or ministering to up in Augusta because I, I was over the baptism. So I would, if people want to get baptized, I would call them up and say, you know, hey, I saw you want to get baptized. You know, I just want to talk to you, kind of see where they're at and their belief in the gospel and all that. And as I was talking to this guy um, and just asking questions about his life, it came up that he was, you know, he had a girlfriend, he was living with her, you know, sleeping with his girlfriend and all that, and, and he wanted to get baptized. And I was like, okay, well, you know, the, the Bible is very clear here, right? And baptism is an outward expression of an inward change, okay? So if you've been changed inwardly by Jesus, it expresses itself outward. And, you know, it's not like you're not damned to hell if you sleep with, you know, your your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, but whenever you come to Jesus, you let go of that and you embrace the righteousness of Christ. You want a life that's different now, okay? It's a change of heart. It's a change of affection, a change of desire. And so I was like, you're not getting baptized. So I told him, well, I'm not baptizing you and the church is not going to baptize you because you're going to be worse off thinking you're saved whenever you're still lost, whenever you're still lost in your sin. And he got mad at me. It was like, who are you to tell me that I can't be baptized? And I said, um, I'm no one. The Bible, God's word is very clear here. I don't make the rules. God makes the rules. And you don't know who Jesus is. You need, you need the gospel. And so I, you know, I don't know if he ever came to faith. I hope he did. But he didn't know. He had still embraced falsehood. He had not embraced the truth of Jesus. He had not embraced the truth of the gospel. He still wanted his sin more than he wanted Jesus. That's what it that's what it comes down to. That's what salvation is. Whenever you want Christ more than you want your sin. And so whenever Peter comes, he gives them this gospel and confronts the falsehood that they have embraced. And what happens? Do they respond negatively or, or, or positively? Verse 12 is what it says. But when they believed, uh, sorry, but, but when they believed, so they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So it, it worked out for, for them, I, I guess. It says they believed. It says they were baptized. Even this guy, Simon, who was doing all this crazy stuff, he was amazed. He saw these signs and wonders, his great miracles performed, and it, it seemed to work out. They heard the gospel. They embraced it. They understood their sin. They understood their need of a Savior. They were changed. Their minds were renewed. But... As I said before, ministry is messy. And changing one's mind to embrace, embrace the truth of Jesus is messy. And as we're going to see, their belief maybe wasn't as solid as they thought, as maybe it seems to be right here. And that brings us to our third and final point. Preaching the gospel gets messy because it's easily understood. 
misunderstood, sorry. Preaching the gospel gets messy because it's easily misunderstood. Let's start in verse 14 to 17. So they, they believe, and then it goes to verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So these people believe, and then they send over the two apostles, Peter and John, just to check in on things. And this is kind of an aside here, but we need to hit it because it's important. Uh, they, it says, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So th- this is, is strange. These people are baptized, these people believe, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. Up until this point, whenever people have believed in Jesus and were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit. Like, they received the Holy Spirit, they believed, okay? But in this instance with the Samaritans, they believe, they're baptized, but they haven't received the Spirit yet until the apostles lay their hands on them, and then they receive the Spirit. What's going on here? Why is, why is that going on? Uh, I, I'll say this. This has led to all types of different beliefs about the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Some people, some churches, pastors believe that the Holy Spirit is only received by the laying on of hands. I don't know. That's more charismatic type churches. Um, I don't believe that. I think this is a very unique situation here. But all these people have all these different beliefs based on this passage. So what's going on here? Why did Peter and John have to come and lay their hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit? Um, To me, the gospel being extended to the Samaritans is such a crazy sort of change, momentous change, that the apostles, these guys with authority, needed to be there to bear witness to the rest of the church that this was indeed true. That... The Samaritans have received the gospel, that the gospel is not just for Jews, but it's for Samaritans and for the rest of the world, so that the rest of the church could know for a fact that the Samaritans have believed, they have been saved, not just because it's some rumor coming back from Samaria, but based on the witness of Peter and John. Yeah, Peter and John here. But Peter and John coming and being there and giving the Holy Spirit and laying their hands on them, um, the whole church can know based on authoritative witness of the apostles that the gospel is spreading to the Samaritans. So this is unique. I don't think it, we receive the gospel by laying on the hands. I think we receive the gospel. I think actually, uh, sorry, I don't believe we receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. I believe that the Holy Spirit regenerates us and then because of that, we repent and believe. It starts with the Holy Spirit. We're first regenerated and then we repent and believe, and, and it goes on from there. So, so that, that's what we see with, the, giving, with the, the laying on of hands and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But as we said before, the gospel is easily misunderstood. And so we're going to go back to this guy, Simon, who witnesses this laying on of hands and this sort of miraculous thing that happens. Because he sees it, but he sees something totally different. We see that in verse 18. Now when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So he wanted that same power. He offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What Simon sees is not the reception of the Holy Spirit, and which is an, an overflow of the gospel. What Simon sees is magical power 
akin to the same type of demonic magic he had. And that's so crazy you can misunderstand the movement of the Spirit of God with demonic magic power. But that's what Simon sees. He misunderstands the gospel. I have a magician friend that I met like two months, three months ago. He told me any magic trick you see, you can have provided you have enough money. Every magic trick you see is just money. You can 10000 20000 As long as you have enough money, you can buy any magic trick. And that's what he said. It's not magic at all. It's just money. It's just rich people. Um, it seems that Simon believes the same thing, right? <laughs> this magic trick he sees, as long as he has enough money to give these guys, he can do the same thing. And he misunderstands what the gospel means. His response to this move of God shows us his misunderstanding of the gospel and reveals the true nature of his heart. The gospel is messy and preaching is messy because it's so easy for people to misunderstand it. It's so easy for people to miss it. I remember um, I was down south whenever I lived in Mississippi I was a part of a discipleship now. I don't know if you guys are familiar with D-Nows. It's like a youth thing. It's like a spend the night lock-in thing. Anyways, the guy, uh, you, the kids are like in, in a group, and I had like four or five boys, and we stayed at someone's house. And um, um, the guy, he was telling me his sort of his story that he grew up in church for 50 years. He was 50 years old. He grew up in church. And he was at a youth event the year before, I believe, and the pastor at the youth event was speaking to the youth kids, and he said this. He said, being in church no more makes you a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. I'm going to say that again. Being in a church makes you no more a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. So just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you know Jesus. That's, that's what it meant. And the guy didn't like that. It's like, who are you? I grew up in church. I'm a good person, blah, blah, blah. And you're saying I don't know Jesus. You know, the fact of the matter is he didn't know Jesus. The fact of the matter is he grew up his entire life in church, hearing the gospel, but never really understood it. He didn't understand that it was salvation purely by God's grace, based on nothing you've done. Salvation through faith in Jesus' goodness and not my own. Belief in the resurrection and the empty tomb, that Jesus has paid it all. He didn't get it. And it wasn't until this youth pastor spoke this message, gave that quote, that it clicked for him. Simon is the same way, and I think we can be that way. I know that I didn't get it till college. He sees this work of God. He hears he was baptized, and he still didn't get it. The gospel can be so easily misunderstood because we want to conform it to things we already believe to be true rather than the gospel conforming us to its truths. Which one's going to change? Which one's going to be conformed? Me or the Word of God? It's only whenever we are conformed by the Word of God that we truly understand the gospel. That's why it's messy, because we really need to see where people are at. And that's why I have 
such a, maybe, maybe it is a fear for the church that maybe we're made up of people that don't really know Jesus. And maybe we're baptizing people that don't really understand the gospel and the implications of the gospel. And if that happens, then maybe we're leaving people worse off than they were before. Because there's nothing worse than a lost person who thinks they're saved, right? How much farther away from Jesus if you think you have him when you don't. This man, Simon, he thought he had him, but he didn't. This is where it gets messy to know where people are actually at. It's a good thing Simon responds the way he does and tries to buy the Holy Spirit. Because had he not said this, Peter would not have responded the way he responded. Verse 20, Peter says, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to God that the intent of your heart may be forgiven, for I see that you were in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter comes to this guy hard and gives him a really hard word. But the gospel always starts with a hard truth. This is what Peter says. He says, your heart is not right before God. He tells them to repent of your wickedness. And he says that you are in the bond of iniquity. If we skip that part, people are never going to understand the gospel. But our implication is to skip that part or sugarcoat it or make it a little bit more palatable so that people will come to our church, right? Or come to our Bible study or hang out with us. But the gospel is good news Precisely because this is true, that we are in the bond of iniquity, that we do need to repent of our wickedness, that our hearts are not right before God. If this isn't true, the gospel ceases to be good news. But because it is true, the gospel is good news. It is our condition before God as sinners that makes the gospel so good, right? But we want to skip over that. Peter here forcefully but truthfully lays bare Simon's condition before him, a condition that he exposed even after he said he believed. He didn't truly believe. His response to what he saw laid bare the true condition of his heart to which Peter responded and gave him the gospel. The gospel is messy and preaching the gospel is messy because people can misunderstand it. We need to be very clear in what it is so that people don't because we don't want people worse off than they already are. And so, as we conclude here, Philip's ministry to the Samaritans is messy. It's, it's, he gets in to these people and confronts all these things. But in this messiness, we see the power of the gospel. We see God's power to break boundaries between the Jews and Samaritans, boundaries that need to be broken in our own day. We see the gospel confront falsehood, false beliefs about what is permissible and what's not permissible. And we see it confront misunderstanding. The gospel, preaching the gospel is a messy business because we are a messy people and the people that need to hear it are a messy people. But our God is a God that cleans messes and he continues to clean messes today. And he does it through the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel. So let's be a people that clean messes through the message of Jesus. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, I just want to thank you this morning for your word and, and for the witness and the boldness here of Philip um, to leave house and home, to endure persecution for the Messiah, Lord, that he had come to believe in, not even, not even for a long time. I thank you for his witness that he is obedient to take the gospel to a people that are not like him. I thank you for his witness to us to speak truth to falsehood, Lord. I thank you for the witness of Peter and John to to correct misunderstanding and to lay bare people's true condition before God. And, And I pray for us that we would not turn away from messiness, but embrace messiness as a people called to be witnesses of Jesus. I thank you that we have your word that sets us straight, that we don't decide what's right and wrong. We, we know that you decide what's right and wrong. I, I thank you that you have opened up our eyes, that we are not conformed to this world, but we have been transformed by the renewal of our minds, and that we have been set on a new path, Lord, um, a path made for us through your Son, Lord. And, I thank you for that, and it's all of grace that we have anything we have. Lord, I just want to pray over these people here and that you would continue to transform their mind, renew their mind, myself included, and to see people afresh as as these Samaritans, as people that just don't know, that have never heard, Lord, that maybe they will respond. The Samaritans responded, and it was still messy, but they did respond. Who are those people in our lives that might respond, Lord? And what does it look like for us to engage these people? So I love you, God. I thank you for your word this morning. In the name of Christ, I pray these things. Amen.